This event is supported by Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas, Anheuser-Busch, the Texas Municipal League, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas, Fibertown, Texas State Technical College, the Texas Association of School Business Officials, the Hackett Center for Mental Health at the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute, and Southwest Airlines, the official airline of Texas Tribune Events. It is hosted by Texas A&M University Corpus Christi. Media support is provided by the Corpus Christi Caller Times. Foundation support is provided by the Hatton W. Sumner's Foundation and the Houston Endowment. The first question I'm gonna throw out to, to all four of you is when we talk about the property tax base, so many things go into that. There's you know, housing, infrastructure, uh, economic development, um, public buildings. How do you balance all of those in, in your individual attempts to help the area recover? And is one of those or more than one of those important than the others? Yeah, sure, I can kick off. So thank you, Brandon, and thank you for having me here. Um, as Brandon mentioned, I'm the program director of the Rebuild Texas Fund. Um, we are a collaboration between the Michael and Susan Dell Foundation and the One Star Foundation. It's a private philanthropic fund that targeted raising $100 million. We've raised about $94 million to date. Um, and we've got six program areas, um, housing, education, workforce, small business, community economic development, and health. And for us, uh, most of our focus is actually outside of Houston. 98% of our funding so far has been outside of Houston, and about 30% of it has been in Aransas County itself. And really, our approach is to um, go and spend some time on the ground with each and every community um, and help them, well, they, they help us define what the needs are. Um, some communities have housing, and most, I would say, have housing as their most prevalent need, and that is typically in all the communities that we're working in, um, that has been the starting point, housing. We're then seeing education as being the second biggest need in most communities. In where we are now, Aransas and Oasis County or St. Patricia County, we're seeing uh, what we call community and economic development be a, a big theme, and that is um, key assets in the community. It could be an arts center, it could be a pier, it could be a theater, or whatever that might be. That is also um, of, of big importance. And the last one, which is also really prevalent in this region more than others that we're working in, is small businesses. So most of the workforce in these regions, um, in this county especially, is um, in small businesses. So it has a very strong workforce component to it. So that has been our main focus in um, Aransas, Nueces, St. Patricio counties. Great. Well, like I said, I'm Mike Kerner. I'm the director of long-term recovery for Aransas County, and that includes the city of Rockport and the town of Fulton. Um, so uh, yeah, our perspective, like, like you said, uh, you covered all those gamuts of things that uh, go into making up long-term recovery. And, and that's what we looked at and we prioritized early on. Um, our top two priorities uh, from day one were uh, debris removal followed quickly by housing. Uh, debris removal was number one, housing was number two. And then as the debris started to dwindle down, housing became number one. And as you try to look at economic development and recovery, and workforce and housing and all those things that come bring a community back. Uh, Aransas County is a tourism-based economy, primarily. So our challenge is how do you bring tourists back to make your revenue streams continue to, to flow? And housing becomes the biggest challenge because housing touches every one of those other, other entities. If I don't have workforce housing, I don't have workforces to work hotels, work restaurants, work the tourism industries, work the mom and pop shops, work the small businesses. So if I can't house them, 
I don't have a workforce, which means businesses can't reopen, which means tourists won't come because they're not going to come if they can't get the service or the level of service they're attuned to. I also have housing tied to continuity of government. How, if your revenue streams or your property base is destroyed catastrophically by an, an act of God, is how do you keep your workforce and your continuity of government, your employees, and how do you keep them employed? Where do you house them if their homes have been destroyed? They have to still do their jobs to make government function, whether it's at the county or the city level. And how do you continue to provide the level of service to the survivors that are still here? So love talking about economic development, love talking about all the creative and initiative things out there, but at the end of the day, uh, the thing that comes back to me every day and the thing that comes back to my staff every day is housing, is how do I get survivors and workforce back into homes, whether it's temporary or long-term, so that our economy can continue to grow and we can leverage all the other things like the Dell Foundation provides out there. Um, great assets, great partners, by the way. We've, we've, we've done some good things already, and I know we're gonna continue to do that. But at the end of the day, my biggest nightmare, if, you, if someone said, what keeps you up every night? The answer is, if I don't get people in housing mm. and I'm a benefit of everything else, all that other stuff falls to the wayside if we can't keep the economy thriving, I can't get tourism back up and running. So okay. that's, that's the challenge that we face, I think. Well, and my name is Pat Rios, I'm the current mayor of Rockport. I've been in my position as mayor for eight days. Uh, <laughs> prior to that, I, I served five years as mayor pro tem for the city of Rockport and been on the ground since, since Harvey hit. Uh, and initially on, uh, my first perception when we came out that next morning and we looked at the community, um, we knew we had a big debris problem and uh, we had to get everything cleaned up. Uh, before we could even start thinking about recovering, we just had to see what we had there and assess what was there. After search and recovery, we went on to, to uh, debris removal. But I kept saying from day one our problem was going to be housing because we knew they were going to clean up the debris relatively quickly. Uh, boy, I was anticipating lots of delays in getting people back into houses. I knew we had, the community had basically left. We had 60% of our folks leave, and the, the previous economy for the city of Rockport, as far as resident, residents, is a barbell. We have very little middle class. We've got people that serve in the service, work in the service industry, and we're primarily a retirement community. A lot of second and third homes, fishing camps, uh, weekend folks that come down on a regular basis. But our workforce work in the, in the service industries. They work in the hotels, they work in the restaurants. Um, again, we don't have major plants that they, they work at. So when these folks left, uh, they had nothing to come back to because the housing was gone, the places where they lived. Um, they were funded by FEMA, uh, living in uh, outside communities, living in Del Rio, Laredo, San Antonio, Austin. and their kids got put in schools there. Uh, once they started to establish roots, they found jobs there. Uh, so they've been living there for about nine months now, rent free, uh, or at least rent being paid. They've got jobs, kids are in school. They wanna come back, but there's no home to come back to. Uh, so we're slowly bringing the, the businesses back online. Uh, again, as Mike said, a tourist-based industry, uh, that's our town. Once our hotels come back online, though, they need to get their workers back. There's no place for the workers to live. So now the dilemma is, do I set aside 10% or 20% of my hotel rooms to house my employees? Well, then I eat into my, my revenue because I can't, I can't charge them for that. Uh, still working on it. One of the bright spots has been so many of the faith-based uh, organizations have come into our town and helped rebuild, repair and rebuild. 
people like Mennonite, the Mennonites, uh, Habitat for Humanity, uh, Texas Baptist Men, Good Samaritans, they're, they're all Samaritans first. They're there right now on the ground. And I apologize for those that I leave out, but there's so many to mention them, all of them. But they're able to help quickly because they don't have to go through the, the bureaucratic nightmare of funding and, and, and FEMA and SBA loans and all that. They bring their own funds, they bring their own labor, they bring their own material, and they're doing repair and rebuild right now, which is a tremendous help, but they're working on the folks that stayed there, not the people that left. So once we get our, our, our current population stabilized, they'll start working on repairing homes that, are, that are, were abandoned, and maybe we can get some of the folks back. So the first priority, um, I, would, I would agree, is housing. You know, trying to get everybody who has been displaced back into a house. And we're at the point right now where we are, we are over um, the response and we're into recovery. So we're looking at long term now, and it's not just getting people in homes. Um, last I heard, we had about 85 people that were still in TSA that were trying to get out. But we're also looking at areas, and it depended on where it got hit, what got, what got most affected. Around here, it was definitely housing. But in other areas, for example, in Newton, Texas, Newton County, um, that was a lot of infrastructure issues. And we're looking forward into the future, it's mitigation. I mean, like it or not, we're hitting another storm season. I mean, we're going into it right now. And what can we do, to, you know, the houses that we've gotten back online, the houses that are gutted, the houses that we've rebuilt, what can we do to prevent that from happening again? And so that has to be a lot of the infrastructure work that we're looking at, looking at not building homes and floodplains, areas that may not have been floodplains that now are, and ways of being able to kind of move around that and not put good money after, after bad. Um, we were, and I appreciate, by the way, you mentioned all those other uh, bureaucratic agencies, but never did you mention HUD. That's right. And I don't know if it was just because <laughs> I was sitting right next to you, but thank you. <laughs> But we have been around, the, the partnership I think that you have seen uh, when, as soon as the storm happened between Rebuild Texas and the GLO's office and HUD and SBA and USDA and FEMA, the local governments, mm -hmm. uh, the county governments, it was as if everybody kind of came together and said none of us are an island and none of us can do this on their own. Um, and we put together these strike teams and we went all around the state. And it's not good enough because by the way, this recovery is not gonna be a one size fits all where some communities had some type of damage, other communities had water damage, some, some had um, um, lots and well, Rockport, you know, you know, you had lots and lots of wind damage as well as water damage, and then some had infrastructure damage. So it was really important, I think, for the federal response and for the state response to go into these communities independent of them coming to D.C. or them going to Austin. But we actually stepped into those communities and met with the people, I love to say, once they're gonna be putting pen to paper and writing their rebuild plans and saying, okay, what are your priorities as a community? Have you thought about that yet? What do you need to be able to recover? And by the way, a check is a really great thing to get, but before you get that check, how are you gonna spend it? What kind of ideas have you put onto, onto paper? What are the plans? What are the priorities? What order are you gonna spend that money in? You're not gonna rebuild a house if you don't have a road to get there yet. And you're not gonna rebuild your road if you don't know how you're gonna get your plumbing to that house. So the, all those things had to happen in steps. And working together as teams and bringing in experts from around the country and looking at some of these local officials who at the time have their, their constituents calling them and saying, I don't have a house, where do I go? 
and knowing that they may not have gone through you know emergency medical you know management training you know their whole life they're not a professional what do they need but it was also i think important to not wait for the federal government to come in but to try to figure out how to empower the local and the county level to be able to start thinking about those rebuild plans some did a really really great job and others you know i think could could um probably learn a lot from you so I'm hoping TML puts you up on, uh, up on, on, on you know, examples of what to do, you know, best, best lessons learned from the, from the storm. Mm -hmm. I mean, the communities that, that weren't prepared, why, why were they not? Um, or in what ways were they not? You know, I, they, they did not realize that they had the power to plan. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of them just looked at it um, and we're waiting for the federal government to come in and kind of take over. And my, in a previous life, I was the mayor of the city of, of Irving. So I, I, right before I came to my job at HUD, I was the mayor of Irving. So I was able to take off my government, my federal government hat and put on my mayor hat and say, you're complaining that you don't have these things, but what are you doing? Do you know the questions to ask? Have you put together a team yeah. You know, where, where are your planning folks? Are you working with a county? Are you working with TxDOT? I mean, there's a lot of tools at your disposal right now while you're waiting for that plan in the GLO's office to come and divide that plan. What have you done? And if you need help, we're here to help you. But you don't want the federal government coming in and telling this is what your city's yeah. gonna look like in 10 years. You know your folks better than anybody else and you need to tell us what you need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that was one of the things. Um, I mean, I think the jury's still out on whether Aransas County, Rockport, Fulton is a success or non-success, and I can speak only from the recovery part right now. Um, we've heard both sides, but I think building on that was, was two of the key principles was we didn't wait. We started, we put together a team of folks whose sole purpose was recovery. Uh, we're not a Houston, we're not a Dallas, we're not a San Antonio. We don't have large emergency management organizations. We don't have paid staff. You have an unpaid emergency management coordinator. You have two mayors and, and a county judge, which um, one of the first insightful things that Aransas County did was prior to the storm, is their emergency management plan was developed as a multi-jurisdictional interlocal agreement where when the devastation happened, the county and the cities acted as one entity with an executive leadership group that made decisions as a group and as a collective for the best of the community. So you didn't get that separation between a city and a county, and so everything was prioritized based on the whole in, in, a, in a more macro sense or more micro sense. So, so that, was a, that was a very insightful, and that was long before I got there, so I, I, I was fortunate enough to inherit that. Then, then the decision was made, that's how you do the emergency, why don't we apply it to the recovery? And so to this day, we have kept that. It is one voice. It is an executive group that, that the team that I work with and work for, uh, that's who we go to, and the community recovers as a collective group. So we didn't have to wait. We, we could utilize the things that we had there. And then the other part was, we're a small rural county. Once again, we don't have a large population. Our city, our city employees and our county employees have regular jobs, not only that, they're affected by a catastrophic category for a hurricane. They've got to worry about their family and their infrastructures and whatever else they have going on and go do their job to provide quality of service to their mm -hmm. constituency. Having a team come in whose sole focus in life 24 hours a day is long-term recovery. I've got, you know, blessed to have six incredible people as part of my team that that's all we do. We, we divide out our specialties and our talents. 
but all we do is long-term recovery. So the public works director for Rockport can go back to being the public works director for Rockport. Mm -hmm. And the emergency management coordinator goes back and starts planning for the next emergency. And the police, the police chief police goes back to being the police, the police chief. And the sheriff goes back to being the sheriff. We liaison with all those groups. We meet regularly. We deconflict and we coordinate mm -hmm. our activities with the normal activities. And as funding comes and challenges come, we deconflict that early on and we speak as one collective. But you know, the best lesson learned I could think for other communities out there that are trying to struggle in recovery is find some people whose sole purpose in life is recovery and then yeah. go let them do it. Yeah. If I can add something. So, um, firstly, I think this was a Category 5 hurricane. Um, it was such a big event for so many communities that, I mean, sometimes I, we're, we're very critical of some communities. Why aren't you prepared? Why aren't you doing things better? How come you didn't have a plan? It's really hard to prepare for a Category 5 hurricane. Um, I will say that of the 41 counties that we're working in, um, Rockport and Aransas County is like probably best in class. These, and these two individuals here are actually um, phenomenal. Like, um, round of applause for them. Um, I wish that every county had these two individuals because, and, and Mayor Wax before Mayor Rios, because I think, you know, their response time was immediate. Mayor Wax was sending out daily updates. He still sends out weekly updates, and I'm sure Mayor Reyes will continue that as well, weekly updates. I mean, the communication has been phenomenal. People know what's going on. And I will say from a funder's perspective, there's no accident that we've put more money into Rockport than any other city, because everyone speaks a unified voice. If you speak to the Chamber of Commerce, they will refer you on to the mayor or to Mike, and everyone is speaking the same voice. There's no infighting. There's no divisions. There's just everyone tells you what they need. It's pretty clear. And unfortunately, most counties or cities are not like that. They, they don't have a full-time um, long-term recovery group, um, or they don't have full-time people working on this. So it is the mayor or the city manager doing this part-time. And they're trying to rebuild, rebuild their own house or get their kids back into school. And it's really hard for them to um, listen to all the complaints or whatever of the, of the residents. And, try to put together a long-term uh, long recovery plan or even a short-term recovery plan. So ideally, for us, for any funder, it would be great if we could go to every community like we do with Rockport and say, okay, what do you guys need? Where can we support you? I'll go to these guys and they'll tell us straight away, these are 20 things that you can help us out with. Every other community, we have to spend session after session after session. And that's what we've become used to, not to undermine any other community. But you kind of have to realize that it's not easy when you've been hit so hard. For, for you to respond straight away to the question of what do you need? There are so many needs. Where do you start? Who do you prioritize? You're going to disappoint someone. So you really need, what, what we're learning is that you need, there needs to be more assistance to communities and people to keep showing up if there aren't um, people within the community like Mike and Mary S to help steer that process. Uh, you said something interesting when, when you first started speaking. Um, and talking about your organization and the vast majority of money has gone, you said, outside of Houston. Yeah. Why is that? Well, I think um, the main reason is because we, we, these aren't official numbers by any means, but we looked at the private philanthropic funds that were available um, across the Hurricane Harvey efforts, and we think that there was about $250 million for Houston. Um, in all the other communities combined, all the other 40 counties that got hit by the hurricane, we think it's about $30 million. Um, combined. Um, like I said, that's not an official number, that's just based on our calculations. So we thought we've got the mandate to work across counties. Our, it's a public fund, we've got donations from 32,000 folks, mostly Texans, 
and they wanted us to work on Hurricane Harvey. They didn't say Houston, they didn't say Rockport, they didn't say any particular county, they said Hurricane Harvey. So we thought it's responsible for us to go where other folks are not going, and we just thought Houston's crowded, um, but they've also got, as has been the theme of today, a lot of folks have mentioned it, they've got a lot of really intelligent people working on the hurricane relief, and they've got a lot of great philanthropists there. Whereas all the other communities, we just not, we wish there were other funds like us um, out there, but there's maybe two or three others that we know of. Um, so that, that's the main reason that communities are hurting. Um, they need, we've talked about state and federal funding maybe coming later, um, at a later point in time. They need money now so that the Mennonites and the, the habitats and so forth are funded. So that's why we realize that we need to play that role. We need to pray. It's harder because it's hard, it's, it's hard to travel to travel around Texas. Our team has done 30,000 miles in about seven months, which is 30,000 miles is the circumference of planet Earth. So we, that's a stat that we've just clocked, that we've actually made wow. one, one lap around planet Earth. But that's what you need. You need to keep showing up to these smaller communities. So that, that's the reason. Um, and the people I've talked to, I mean, just covering this for months, I mean, there's fingers are pointed in all different directions. You know, this official didn't do that. This agency is doing this. The one thing that everybody seems to agree on is the pain in the ass that is the privacy provision of the Stafford Act. So my question is, what, I mean, if, if everybody agrees on that, what is being done about it? And I guess I'll, I'll start with you. And I mean, are y'all like in DC talking about changing that so that local officials do get better data and, from and FEMA. Better, better data and better information. So, so what, he's, what he's talking about is when FEMA goes in and they actually do their um, um, determination of, of damage, they are hearing not from communities, they are hearing from individuals. Well, when you put your, your individual information in, that's considered, pri you have privacy to that information. So as far as like names and ages and those are, that's private data because that individual has now given that information to FEMA for help. That information is not shared with anybody else, including the communities. And the communities, you know, to, um, to the mayor's point, they wanna know who they've lost in their community. Mm -hmm. So if you have 10,000 people in, that normally have lived in your city and you have had 3,000 displaced, or are they coming back? Where have they gone? But that information is pretty much one-sided. FEMA keeps it. So yes, there's been conversations. Trust me, there's actually a lot of conversations because in addition to that, there's other things. When FEMA comes in, um, they are responsible for the initial response, but money that they put in and what they do to fi actually fix residents can't be considered permanent. That HUD has to come in and do that. And so there's like this, trans, this, this transition, and it is bureaucracy. Um, we are putting together, actually our region I'm very proud of, because um, you've got the, the regional administrator from HUD, from HHS, from FEMA, from EPA, all of us are getting together and talking about what have we learned from this. From day one that this has happened to, what, what, what day are we in now? Nine, nine months, months later, <laughs> you know, what, what have we learned and what would we do better? There's a lot of conversations. Some of it's going to li literally take an act of Congress to change. Um, and others of it are policy, policy changes. Um, but we also have to think about the way that how we work as a community has changed. For example, are we using like an Airbnb model for disaster? Um, we used it in California. 
When that happens and you have a community that loses a tremendous number of housing units and you have people who are displaced, is there an opportunity to be able to use technology? So if people have a house that was not damaged, but they have an extra ha uh, bedroom with a bathroom, could they get TSA funds from FEMA to be able to have people that live in that community stay there? So you're keeping the dollars in that community, you're keeping the kids in that school district, and people are staying in that city, and they're being able to be by, by their home as it's get re rebuilt. Those things are, as technology changes, those things are changing. Um, we recently went to um, a session with IBM, and Mike, you were there as well, looking at uh, blockchaining and how we can use that information to get a lot of more immediate help to survivors. So, yes, those conversations are happening. Technology will be a part of those conversations. And the fastest that we can get it back, obviously, if, if, it's, if it's corrected cheaper, that's better for everybody because you have more money for the next for the next um, um, damage that happens, as well as the next individual. Mm -hmm. Have there been any members of Congress who have said they, you know, would carry legislation that you know would loosen up some of the privacy restrictions, at least just for for local officials, just for y'all to have? We've discussed it with uh, some of our elected officials, but and they've all nodded and said yes. But I'm not aware of any any bill that's been crafted yet uh, to, to address that. But it's, it's, uh, it would help. <clears throat> Again, we, we're not even notified when a, a manufactured housing unit comes into the community, when it comes in or where it's installed. Uh, so we don't know where it's, it's been put. And uh, The way we find out is when neighbors call and complain that, that there's a trailer in the, in the neighborhood now and you know, we're able to identify it that way. But one thing that we, we stress with, with, with our staff is that, that this is our recovery. This, we own the recovery. We look to our partners on the federal and state side as, as resources. And that's uh, understanding that they're not here to give us anything, but to help us, guide us, and then make whatever, they, whatever their particular expertise or whatever's in their silo, they make available to us. So we have to make sure that this is our recovery. Um, get a team like this put together and let them do that because we still have our work to do. Like Mike said, we've got, we've got ribbons to cut. I mean, we've got budgets to run. We've got things to, to, to look at. And it's even more uh, daunting now because we're going to get a, a better picture of what our um, budget's going to look like as we look at, at, as we get better numbers from our appraisal district uh, at the end of this month and see what's happened to our, our values, our land values and home values. Do you know a ballpark yet of, of how bad it is? Well, the, the day after the storm, the appraisal district was telling us we could have lost 40 to 45, 48% of our value. Right now, we feel real comfortable that it's going to be in that 25, 26, 27% range. Uh, we'll get that, again, um, a, a much better number by the end of the month is once they get through doing, you know, completing their work. I think they've just completed the, uh, the tax protest uh, on the 15th. Put, put that 25% that the mayor just said into perspective though. So if you're a local government and you're trying to figure out with that 25% loss in your tax base, how are you gonna fund the government and keep it going forward? FEMA has a program, it's called Community Disaster Loans. They've been very generous to come down and have talked to our, our community leadership for both the towns and the, and the county. The qualification to qualify for a CDL loan is 5%. So that means 
FEMA and the federal government deems 5% enough catastrophic damage to your property revenue to come in and assist you with a loan or a grant, 25% is, is monumental if you're looking at that. So that, that's, what, yeah. that's what leadership faces here. And then they face the challenges of getting back to, back around to the, the private, private property and the private you know, information business. Um, we've, we worked through that and that was always the leadership's biggest complaint was not so much all the other data that's collected in there, but if you're coming in and putting temporary housing in the community, where are you putting it? Where are these people going to be? What preparations do we need to have in order to make that work? So, you just lost it. Yep, I'll just talk really loud. <laughs> so, so part of that was the frustration in it, and it, and it, it, it's exemplified in a story, which just makes it so ridiculous. Is, is one day I think we lost all I of think us. We're all so. lost. Yeah. We'll just keep talking really loud. So, so the one day, the greatest example of, of bureaucracy at its finest and why data matters was when. They were coming in to place a mobile home unit for a family of survivors that had qualified, done their due diligence, they had the plot, they had the land. Here comes the contractor to put the mobile home unit in and they can't get down the street and place it because there's debris all over the, all over the property. So the first thing they do is they call me and go, well, why wasn't this property cleaned and prepped before we put the house there? And my oh so eloquent answer was, mm -hmm. did you even tell me you were putting one there? I think I used some more colorful language at the time, but. <laughs> But the point was, is we have to work together. And we, we've, we've gotten there. And all that took was, it took us, it took two things. It took understanding that the Privacy Act is, is a law and there's ways to get around that. There's privacy release forms. We used to use them in the Senate and the House all the time. So Aransas County just created their own. And we had people sign that, which gave us some legal cover to be able to do some of those things. And more importantly, it was going back to FEMA and GLO and saying, here's why I need this data. And I don't need it all. I just need an address. I just need a location and I need a time. And I had to go through, personally had to go sign my life away to FEMA and be vetted and, and deemed worthy to where now we can get that data. But I am the only person in the county, not the mayors, not the judge, who gets access to that data because it's encrypted. And all I can see is an address and a, and a home, which suits me fine, but you can work through it. But it's, and, and I, I learned this from Beth the first time I met her, and she goes, this is how the federal government works. You ask them 11 times and let them say no, and then on the 12th time they finally say yes. So we've adopted that. I deny that, that I ever said that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've, we've, adopted, we've adopted that. So, so 12 is the magic number. We will ask until someone either gives in or kicks us off the planet, and we'll continue to do that. Also, I think on the small business side, it's a similar issue because a lot of small businesses that have applied for SBA loans, I think there's like a 25 or 30% acceptance rate. I don't know what the official number is, but we've got a small business loan program that we're doing with Lyft Fund, and we've been saying that, well, it's much more efficient if Lyft Fund or any other bank had access to the at least the businesses that have been rejected so that you don't need to get those businesses to reapply. I think there's real challenge associated with folks that have been hit by a hurricane to keep redoing the same sort of paperwork. So I think to the extent that that could be streamlined for individuals and, and for small businesses, I think it would be, it'd be great. Um, we're not just you know, coming up on another hurricane season, but you know, on, on summer and tourism season. Um, how, how are things in Rockport? Are, are y'all ready for summer and, and for, for summer tourists? We're ready. Daytimers, or they were staying elsewhere and coming to the, to the 
city during the day because there were no, no places to stay to speak of. Right now, uh, 80, 80 to 90% of the available hotel rooms are being used by uh, construction workers that are coming and staying. They're, they're renting them on a 30-day basis. So we don't see HOT taxes from that because it's long-term rentals. Uh, we're starting to see them leaving on the weekend. So we're getting some weekend folks come through. We had 1,800 hotel rooms. We've got about 800 available right now. So we're down, but, and again, those 800, there may be uh, uh, 100 or so available every, every weekend. Um, our restaurants are, are running into issues with staff. Uh, we've got one of the major restaurants in town is now closed on Saturdays and Sundays because they can't staff. Uh, another one really nice downtown serves in the bar because they don't have wait staff for the, the main dining area. Uh, but the food's really good. I mean, they're, they're doing well. Uh, we could use a fried chicken place. We don't have one. That's the big complaint. Fried, fried entrepreneurs out yeah, there. Fried chicken and uh, fishing piers we could use. But uh, uh, so we're getting better every day. We're, we're, we're growing a little by little. Uh, I think we're going to have a, a fairly good summer season. Will be a lot of folks come in. The beach is, is open. It looks great. Um, you know, we're starting to get some of our venues back, back that come, people come to visit. But we're still missing the aquarium. Uh, the Center for the Arts is working on a limited basis right now. Uh, but we, Fulton Mansion is now reopened. People love to come see that, especially all, all the architects and, and uh, home builders and engineers like to come see that Fulton Mansion that, that stood for all those hundreds, hundred plus years. Um, and has weathered so many storms. It took a pretty good hit, but it's open right now. So they like to come see that. But again, that's a day, daytime thing. I think you really need to think about how much that community has gone through and what they have done in the last nine months. I was there very soon after the storm happened and think about how much debris yeah. you had. <laughs> think about all of those. It was incredible. I mean, it was, it was heartbreaking. And Brandon, I know you were there because you, you were posted pictures on Twitter of all those, of those, those photos. Think about what you've done in the last nine months. It's not done. No. And it's not done. You're not 100% yet. But the amount that you have been able to achieve working in partnership with FEMA, working mm -hmm. with TxDOT, and, the, and, and taking the leadership ability that you had hiring folks to do it, realizing that your staff already had a full-time job right. was incredible. And, and finding I, want, the right I mean, people. and you mm -hmm. guys have done a huge amount of, and I really think that they deserve a, a lot of credit for getting as much done as they have in the last nine months, because it's day and night, what it, it looked like. And, and the quality of people we were able to put in that, on Mike's team. Mike, for starters, has so much experience uh, in the Beltway, in Austin. He knows the people, he, they're on his, on his telephone directory. Uh, but then him getting two former city managers, one out of the state of Florida. I think this is his eighth hurricane? Sixth or seventh, I think. Well, yeah, he's, this is, he's been through this before. So they're tremendous help for us. Uh, and talk about debris removal, if it wasn't for TxDOT and Crowder Gulf and having those contracts in place. And again, one contract for the, for the county, uh, which serves Fulton and Rockport, was smart. Uh, we were able not to have conflicting contractors fighting for landfill space. But one of the, the really neat things, Beth, you mentioned, was the amount of debris. You know, everyone's seen that great YouTube video of the 35 bypass, the highway, where they took the median, two miles long, uh, 150 yards wide in some spot, 30 feet high, full of debris as far as you can see. Mount Trashmore, 
There's view after view, people driving down there mm -hmm. looking at that debris. That was a tech stop um, site that they, they, they put debris into. Now, that was just tech stop cleaning state right-of-ways. Uh, no, they, they cleaned a total of about 400,000 cubic yards of debris. But at no time was there more than 250 or 300,000 cubic yards of debris on that drop site. And it was massive. And when you explain to people that that was 10% of what we cleaned up, uh, people can't believe that. When you think about it, that was a small site. The big site was at the transfer station at the airport. And people couldn't see that because it's, it's behind fences and, and gated off. Yeah. Yeah, Chancellor Sharp alluded to it in his talk about the amount of storm debris, and he mentioned Aransas County. Um, like the mayor said, to date and counting, it's been 3.6 million cubic yards of debris. And for most people, that's just a number, 3.6 million. Yeah, it sounds like a lot. So we try to put it in perspective and kind of draw a picture. He talked about the two miles long, 150 feet wide, 30 feet high. So we did the math one day because we were curious as to how much land debris takes up when you start to rack and stack it. If you took 30,000 cubic yards of debris, just 30,000, which was about the average we could remove in a day when we were really working hard, and you stack that 20 feet high, it covers one acre of land. Aransas County is the fifth smallest county in the state of Texas. So to be able to get that stacked and removed was, was part of the success. And there was a lot of creativity. There's a lot of thinking out of the box. TxDOT, having, having uh, Air Force burners flown in and bought by the state of Texas to burn what we couldn't move. But, uh, and all of that with the same goal of how do we get the streets clean? Because not only is it recovery to allow the businesses to open, to allow the homes start to get built, but it's morale. You talk about mm -hmm. resiliency of the community mm -hmm. is how do you give people hope that while they're waiting for the Calvary to come down the road, what is being done to restore them to some sense of, of normalcy and getting back to tourism and bringing it all back to mm -hmm. Are we ready for tourism? Yes, absolutely. It's gonna be a different type of tourism. It'll probably be more of a day tourism. You may not be able to spend a night or two, but you can certainly come down for the day. Rumor is the fishing's great. I, I don't know, I don't get to go. But everyone else says the fishing's been phenomenal since the storm, so come on down and fish. Come on down and spend your money in, in the hotels and the restaurants, and come on down and spend money in the businesses, absolutely. Um, after Katrina, one of the recommendations was that HUD should do handle short-term and not just long-term, but also short-term housing after hurricanes. And I know one of the reasons that never happened is Congress never gave HUD the you know fine, like the the budget to handle something like that. But I mean, you've all talked about you know these different bureaucratic rules and like having to like work together, having to like kind of figure out which agency does what. Um, and in a lot of ways, it kind of sounds like everybody's kind of like having to figure out a way to reinvent the wheel after every storm. I mean, is doing something like that, having one federal agency handle housing after a storm, do y'all think that that would be a, a, a much more efficient process and would get people back into their homes quicker? So yeah. the reason why, after Katrina, the reason why it was given to one agency was because you had all that mad dash of all of the, the mm -hmm. SBA coming in and you know duplication of benefits. So if they accepted benefits from one department, you couldn't accept it from another. And that all came in and it was, it was crazy. It was mass chaos. And so what they learned after that was, okay, 
every there will be one agency that is it's in charge of response and that all of the other agencies will work with them and that's what we do right now so fema is that agency that's in charge of response then hud comes in and does recovery but i mean even before this storm happened we were having meetings with fema i was calling up mayors i talked to cj wax before the storm happened um, I talked to uh, uh, Houston, uh, Beaumont, Port Arthur before the storm happened. Because what we're doing is we are assisting FEMA to try to get folks into temporary shelters. We were having meetings with the Texas Apartment Association and with the local apartment associations. What availability do you have? We were working with our public housing authorities to worry about you know, rehousing our clients that were in public housing that was damaged. So there's a lot of communication going on, and at every time we were in the shelters and we were in the joint field office, and from day one, we started having meetings with all of the departments every month, talking about how they all fit together and what they work. And from the outside perspective, it does seem chaotic because there's a lot mm -hmm. of talking voices going through, which is why when I got in there, I was thinking from the perspective of a mayor of a local official, it's too much. It's, it, there's yeah. way too many. There's way too many different touch points, and who do I call? And you know, FEMA has that one number that you call, and that's what you give to the residents that that have been affected. But as far as the planners go, that was the that was the thought behind those meetings, those disaster strike team meetings, mm -hmm. was bring mm -hmm. everybody together at the table from all of the different federal agencies, from the state, from the local, get them all at the same table in that community to hear what their needs are. Because I've, I have a, a, made it similar to trying to get a, a loan to college. You know, if you're looking for a grant, a college grant, you have to be very, very specific about what your need is. And if you're looking through every single thing that the, that the federal government offers, you could spend your rest of your life doing that. And you may only be able to take advantage of one or two grants. So bringing everybody together at the same table gave them an opportunity to say, these are our priorities. And HUD may only fit in 5% here. SBA may, able, may be able to fit in 10% here, but what can we do to get you back on your feet? And it's not necessarily going in and saying, you know, what do you need? Right. But five months after the fact, we were hoping that communities, you're gonna be the ones that know, okay, this neighborhood always floods out. And by the way, this business employs 500 people in our community. It's our number one um, um, community partner. We need to worry about where those folks are staying. Um, it's the communities that are looking at those priorities and are helping us to determine that. FEMA, especially right after Harvey, where, where do they go, right? We had not just Texas that we were focused on, but then we had Florida, yeah. then you had Puerto Rico, then you had California. So. At no point in time did that ever go off our radar. Like I said, we still had those, those meetings going on and on and mm -hmm. on. But we need to make it very clear and very simple when people are coming in, these are the different groups that you work with. And mm -hmm. this is how we can help put, your, put, put together the resources from the federal government, because it's not just federal agencies that are involved. I mean, TxDOT, GLO, um, Rebuild Texas, all of those, um, you know, the Army Corps, we pull all of those groups mm -hmm. together. Everyone has a resource, and while that may not be the, the last mile or 100%, how can we at least get those resources pulled together in a pool to make a difference? Do you all want to add anything? I mean, would it be easier for y'all if you had one agency to work with, at least on the, the housing recovery side, instead of you know two different federal agencies and a state agency doing short-term and then long-term? 
I, I don't I don't think that's that's the issue per se. I, I think I think what what Beth said is the issue is is knowing who to go to right. for certain things and, and sort of navigating that uh, that labyrinth that is uh, that is the federal government. It, it's 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 helpful. It'd be nice to be able to have, you know, just like the quarterback has on his wrist, his little play card would be oh. Okay, it's, it's this housing-related thing, I call this number, or I call this number, and have that ready Rolodex of, of things to do. I, it doesn't matter which agency is to right. be, but I, but I think the challenge with having multiple agencies sometimes is that the rules and restrictions for those agencies sometimes are counterintuitive. The rules that HUD has to follow that were established under federal regulation for HUD sometimes run contrary to what FEMA's regulations are. So, okay. you know, if, if you're looking for lessons learned, it would be go back to that that federal level and look at the Stafford Act, which guides everything. It's now 30 years old. It probably doesn't leverage technology like we have now and doesn't allow for the flexibility, maybe. But also look at those CFRs, those, those federal regulations, and go, where, where do they butt against each other, and how could we make them swim in parallel? And then get, once you get that figured out, when you come into a community, go, here's your playlist. Here's who you call. Uh, and that would, I mean, we probably spent a lot of hours just going out, well, not only which agency do I call for that, but which department within that agency mm -hmm. has jurisdiction or has the authority to say yes or no. Uh, waste a lot of bureaucratic man hours yeah. doing that. And I, I like to make the joke, and it's no disrespect to a bureaucrat because I used to be one, is uh, the system is designed to make it easy for the bureaucrat, and it makes it more difficult for the individual trying to utilize it. So somehow, we got to figure out how to flip that. Mm -hmm. but, but we were able to get on top of that issue Back, I think the first in December we had the first housing strike yep. force team meeting, and we had every entity in that room. We had decision makers, people with checkbooks. Brent, Brendan was in that room too, and people with people that uh, that knew. There were experts in their area. It was that's a big advantage as opposed to because I think if you had one entity you'd go to, they'd have to take all those pieces of each group and combine them, and you'd still have departments within within one yeah. one one um, agency um, but having everyone in the room and, and Beth remembers the ask what do you want well we don't necessarily want FEMA trailers yeah. we want permanent housing we want uh, if it's modular if it's you know we want to solve the problem long term uh, using the example that uh, worst case scenario manufactured home can cost up to two hundred thousand dollars to manufacture transport and install we could get, we had your team put together a, a, a working plan to, to put in 850 to 1,400, 1,500 square foot homes, wind, windproof, hurricane proof, uh, modular, build them, what is it? 10 five, days. 10 days. <laughs> yeah, uh, build a house every 10 days, put them in place. In 18 months, you're not faced with that trailer going out and leaving your people right back to square one. And we can get them done for between what eighty-five thousand and one hundred and fifteen thousand, uh, and they would go on the tax rolls, what the trailer never does. So there were a lot of advantages, and we we, uh, we presented that to the to the team, and it was the, the good thing that came out of that was FEMA actually said that's a really good idea. We've got money, but we're not allowed to do that. And everyone went down and said hey, all the way down to the GLO. It's all we can do is install temporary yeah. housing. But they started thinking about the next step, and I think that's that's where we're going to end up. It's going to take a while, but I think this is going to be a model for future recovery and future storms, because we've been working so hard at the next the next step. 
Mm -hmm. The modular homes is one, one solution, but you know, 3D printing of homes is Oh, well. yeah. Okay. That, a card was stuck into my hand when I was with Secretary Carson in Houston in Beaumont right after. And they came and they said, we can do it for a fraction of the cost. We could do it in 10 days. And it's one of those things that sounds a little bit too good to be true. We're going down to Austin next week to go look at a neighborhood of those homes that were created with 3D printing. And, you know, is it cheaper? Can they get it done? Can, can they get it done quickly? And is it permanent? Mm -hmm. I mean, those trailers cost a lot of money, a lot more than you would think, because part of the cost is not just the cost of the trailer, but it's actually transporting it yeah. there, hooking it up, getting all of the, the, that, and then mm -hmm. removing it. And by the time it's removed, it's typically trashed oh, it's anyway. You can't reuse them. So what can we do to take the money that you would spend on a trailer, which is very temporary, and yeah. put it into permanent housing? Mm -hmm. And to your point, we do have to look at, one, new technologies, but two, ways of being able to work with the agencies, I think, in a more effective manner. So I've hit the time limit on my questions. Um, do we have any questions from the audience? We do have a microphone up here if, if somebody wants to come up and ask. what we should have figured out then as we move forward. We've got a multi, we've got a lot of layers that y'all are dealing with. You've got residents that are looking for um, homes. You don't want to do the temporary, you want to go permanent, understand that. But then there's a potential problem from a revenue standpoint of the investors, the tourists, the investors that come from other parts of the state, other country, and many will invest and need the rental income in order to make their mortgage. And if they don't, they're going to be foreclosed upon. And in, on Port Aransas, you've got a lot of condominiums where that impacts the other owners because the HOA dues will not be paid by the bank. Um, you've got various levels of recovery. A lot of the restaurants in, in Rockport and Fulton are starting to reopen, but you don't have the housing. But we've got housing in areas like Corpus where they were not as heavily impacted. Is there a communication that's going on? You've had Oyster Fest. You've got Babes on the Bay tomorrow. Uh, you've got uh, Beach to Bay and Corpus Christi in the area. I live in Houston. I have a second home and investment properties on North Padre and can tell you that outside of this area, a lot of people think the lights are off. And that does not bode well for that recovery. Mm -hmm. While you're dealing with the immediate needs, there are other potential obstacles that will come up in the form of a depressed real estate market. I don't want to interrupt you, but what's the question? Well, the question is, is trying to get your hands around the problem. Is there funding from FEMA or some other governmental agency? We know to continue things operating, but how about to help put the word out as these positive things that do occur in the community happens so that the rest of the country, the rest of the state knows that we're open for business again. Okay, God bless you for that question. I'm sorry? I said God bless you for that question. 
the positive news getting out, we would love to actually see the media writing about that positive, yeah. those positive news stories. Yeah. It would be great because every community that I've been in has positive news stories, but it doesn't seem to sell papers. So what you'll hear about is you'll hear about that 1% and not about the 99%. Yeah. But there are stories. We, we had the secretary in Houston um, two weeks ago. We had a number of people that we brought in that are now in permanent housing that were stuck, that were in shelters, and what we've done to get them in permanent housing. It would be great. Now, are we spending federal money to market that? Probably not. Um, I know that um, CDBG funds have been, uh, CDBG DR funds have now been given to Texas that the first initial installment was five million, well, it was about half a billion from last year, uh, 58 million from last year, but you've had another uh, five billion that have come in on top of another five billion. When we talk about, okay, it's been Ike, what are we doing? to now get our, get our stuff together so that we're not facing this again. The best part of what we could do is prevent those damages from happening, which is working on mitigation. We need to work on figuring out ways of being able to stop the damage that occurred. And that, to me, needs to be a focus, and that is the focus of a lot of the communities, is okay, we know that this street is gonna, is gonna flood out, what can we do to raise the level of the street? And it's not sexy, as a mayor, hey, I raised this road six inches, reelect me. But that might be all the difference in the world yeah. to entire neighborhoods, whether or not they're gonna be flooded or able to get in and out. But mitigation really is the key on what can we do to prevent, we can't control the weather, but what can we do to control the damage that happens to it? Well, and while you're taking care of your residents' needs, which is paramount, yeah. there are others that support the community. And I'm just yeah. asking because well, the government's we, taken care of. Yeah, we, we've uh, actually started our campaign uh, to get the good news out. Uh, last month, we every year we have something called Spring Fling, where, where the Chamber of Commerce invites in sports outdoor writers from all over the state. I published Texas Outdoors Journal for 27 years. So were you at Texas we, Outdoor News Radio? So I'm real familiar with Diane Probes. Okay, were you at Spring Fling this year? Not this year. Okay, no. we had we had a great turnout uh, right. again. We've been getting great stories from from uh, writers all over. It started that weekend. David Sykes put out a couple great articles, but they're they're uh, they're everywhere right now. They're coming from magazines, newspapers, and we really appreciate that. But uh, right now we're, we're getting ready to kick off our, our next campaign, uh, which uh, we've got up to $500,000 in advertising monies made available through a grant donation. And we've actually uh, got, uh, George Strait is gonna do the voice for us on commercials. We've been previewing that. I think if you go out to the Rockport Fulton Chamber of Commerce site, you can actually click on and see the TV commercials and hear the radio ads that are gonna run. Uh, but we've got to be careful. We want to make sure we run them when we can have people come and we've got places for them to stay and things to do. Last thing we want to do is have somebody drive in from Austin, spend a weekend, have poor service, can't find a hotel room, and go back and at, in the lunchroom tell 10 people that had a terrible time, don't bother coming. Sure. So it's all timing. It's all a matter of, 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 uh, of handling that. One we final comment and I'll, and, I'll, okay. and I'll give it to somebody else. Coming from Houston, People are amazed when I call the boiling pot and say, how busy are you? And they said, we're not. And I said, I'll see you in 40 minutes. And they go, you're gonna drive 40 minutes to come eat here? I said, absolutely. Um, yeah. There's people in bigger cities that will make that drive. You have communities, again, that does, does have housing that's available and, and mm -hmm. you know, reaching out. I know everybody's wanting their piece. I've talked to your counterpart, Jimmy uh, Kendricks. Sure. Um, they want their piece. But as we go through this recovery, embracing your neighbors to help, 
have them mm -hmm. maybe stay not in Rockport but elsewhere, but still enjoy what's going on in Rockport sure. or other areas. Thank you. Thank you. Does anybody else have any questions? Okay. Well, that's time. I just want to thank all of our panelists for being here today. I want to thank all of you for being here today. And I also want to thank our sponsors uh, for this event. Thank you all. Thank you.